Everybody knows that inequality is getting worse. Well, almost everybody, anybody serious, anyway. For Gary Stevenson, that is the essential trend, not just the last 15 years, but the next 15 years too. Not that long ago, Gary was one of the most successful traders on the planet. Now he's a campaigner around inequality, though he still does the occasional trade as well. An amazing guy with really interesting insights as to what happens next. I really enjoyed this conversation. Gary, it's great to have you joining us on Downstream. Thank you. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, we'll start right from the beginning. Age 22 in 2008, you got a job as a trader at Citigroup in Canary Wharf. Within two years, you made your first million pounds. And that's a position that a lot of young people aspire to, but you started from a very humble beginning. So can you walk us through your story, where you come from, the, the Gary Stevenson <laughs> kind of narrative arc? Yeah, okay, so I'm from Ilford, which is a small suburb of East London. Uh, yeah, I come from a pretty poor background. Um, little terrace house next to the railway. Got uh, one brother, one sister. Um, I was always very good at maths growing up. Um, so I think if you grew up in East London, you know, when I was a kid, we could literally see the, the skyscrapers in Canary Wharf going up when we were kids. Um, you kind of assume you're just going to go into banking, right? So that was sort of the path I thought I'd go on. Um, I got expelled from school when I was 16 for, a, I normally call it a drug-related incident. Um, uh, what was it? It was like cannabis. Yeah. You, know, it was, you were uh, expelled? Yeah, yeah, 16. Just for smoking cannabis? Uh, I think I sold about two pounds worth of cannabis. Oh, okay. Yeah, which I wouldn't call it a sale, but um, yeah, I was young and I don't condone such things, but um, it happened back then. So I was sort of stuck at home, give me a bit of a kick up the ass and I was sort of studying for my exams, but I did well in my exams and, uh, you know, managed to get good A-levels and went to go to LSE. So LSE, I don't know if you know people from LSE, it's a bit of a London School of Economics. It's a bit of a investment banking boot camp. Um, and I kind of figured I'd just go there, kill the exams. I was studying maths and economics and get a job as a trader. Uh, but that, is then, super, that is super hard. Well, Ma maths, exactly, what, maths, to get the job. No, maths for a degree yeah. is, because I know people that did maths at the mm. LSE, and they were really good maths students at A-level or whatever. Yeah. But university level maths is incredibly demanding. I mean, you must be really good at maths. Maths is, it was my thing as a kid. Yeah. yeah I, I won a few competitions. Maths right. was my thing as a kid. Um, it's just sort of the way my mind works. Um, but I, I thought I could just go and just kill the maths exams and get a job. Um, but it was, I remember sort of coming back second year and suddenly everyone at LSE is just, they start talking in acronyms, CDSs, MNAs, MBOs, you know, CDOs, IBD. And I was thinking, what is going on? Like, I didn't know anything. And I spoke to a friend and he was like, yeah, well, you have to apply for 35 internships and you, have to, you hope you get one and then that's how you get a job. And um, all of these guys, you know, LSE, LSE is like literally full of like kids of like Russian oligarchs and the Chinese Politburo, you know, this like international billionaires send the kids to LSE. And they'd all been like prepping from when they were kids. They'd all like, they'd all like started a charity, you know, and trekked through the Sahara Desert. And how, how long did it take you to work this out at the LSE? How, how long did it take you to work out, okay, the people I'm now studying with at university, it's not like the creme de la creme of the kids at school, which is what you think it is before you go to university, yeah. but it's actually people I've never met before. I remember I was in the maths department, which is a bit of sort of, you know, what maths guys are like. And we went on like this sort of away day, like very early on. And I brought like a two litre bottle of like white lightning cider <laughs> and I, on, the, on the coach. And I was like, I brought some cider. Everyone was looking at me like I was insane. And I remember thinking, this is not like what I saw in the movies. Um, but 
I was, to be honest, when I was a kid, I was like, man on a mission. I'm going to get this job. Nothing's going to stop me. And that's why it was quite dispiriting to realise that basically you have to send all these CVs and cover letters and everyone, you've got to fluff it with all this stuff, right? Like I played clarinet at the Royal Albert Hall, you know what I mean? This kind of stuff. And literally I was fluffing pillows at DFS. That's all I had, you know. I tried to be a grime rapper, you know, you can't put that on your CV. You know, I had the little jacket with cadaverous crew written on the back of it. But like, so I was thinking, how am I going to get this job basically? And I... I didn't know what to do. So I just figured like I didn't make a single application because I knew I would never beat these guys on CV and cover letter. Like there's nothing. Literally, I'm fluffing, pill fluffing pillows at DFS in Beckton. You know, I'm not going to get a job with that. So I figured I'll just like try and kill these exams and like be very sort of like loud about it and hope somebody notices. And basically somebody did notice because uh, a guy from near above said, just I never even met the guy. He came up to me in the library one day and he said, Citibank hires one trader year to a card game. It's a maths game. You win that game, you can get a job. And I was sort of, my ears pricked up because it's like maths. I'm, I'm good at maths. I'm good at games. So let's just do this, right? And he explained like the rules of the game to me. And then I went to the competition. I won the LSE round. And then I basically just stopped going lectures. And I just, all I did was study this one game, which was like a stupid little maths game. What was the game? It's like a card game. It's like a poker style game. They make it, Basically, like everyone has a card mm. and there's another three cards in the middle. And you just... You essentially, you make bets using a trading style mechanism of what the sum total of everyone's cards will be. So it's probabilities, basically. Well, this is actually interesting you say that because the, the way I won the game was I knew that all the mathsy guys would just calculate the statistical expected value. Yeah. Which meant that if someone had a higher card, they'd quote higher prices. And if someone had a low card, they'd quote low prices. And you could just buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. And it's kind of... It's amazing it was that easy. And, and other people probably should have realised what I was doing. But I think this is, I think, another thing which has sort of benefited me throughout my career. Because of the way that I look and the way that I sound, I think people just thought I was fucking an, an idiot, basically, doing mad stuff. Like, but it was easy. They were playing the numbers and I was playing the game, basically. So um, I won that competition. And the, the madness of it is what that meant was, you know, all these other guys who'd be like learning all these acronyms, you know, and sort of, talking to like you know they were in the investment society in the finance society going to all these events and here's me turning up on my internship I didn't know anything I didn't know a single acronym I didn't know anything like that um, and the maddest thing of it all is the traders fucking loved it they loved me turning up like some kid from down the road like just like I don't know anything but teach me and I'll do it you know what I mean and um, I think it kind of you know, there's this myth of like the Cockney wide boy trader, mm. um, but it don't exist. The you barrow go, boy. Exactly. Yeah. You, you go there nowadays and it's all just, um, you know, it's, it's rich guys from rich families. It's, it's that sort. It's the same sort of international money delete that goes to LSE. You know what I mean? It's, you know, there's some sort of blue, blue bloods and Oxfords and Cambridges, but it's, you know, Bocconi and MIT and it's all of these just rich guys from rich families. So I think they saw me turn up just like a Bocconi, kid. Bocconi, just for viewers, it's a, a university in Milan. And a finance university, yeah. man. It's yeah. like the Italian LSE, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they loved it and I turned up and um, then the financial crisis happened just after I started. And then within a few years, I was the most profitable trader in the bank, which um, which I guess we'll talk about how that happened. The Citibank. Yeah, Citibank, yeah. So, so you, you start this great job off the back of winning a card game. Yeah. An amazing story. And it's like, uh, I'm expecting a Netflix film about this. Yeah, it'll you know. come. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I suspect so. You go to work at Citibank. You walk in, first day. What's that like? Trading floor is a big place. Um, I remember 
I remember getting the train to Canary Wharf and the Jubilee line makes this sort of like whooping sound. It's not, it's not like the trains that go past my window. Um, yeah, I remember they walked me in. I remember just seeing like massive, massive floor. I think the big thing that hits you about the trading floor is all these screens. It's like every trader has like a wall of like nine screens, massive wall of screens like that. And um, they walked me around and they sort of sat me down, um, introduced me to the, to the boss of the desk and... Um, the boss is high and then he just ignores you, right? And you're sort of, you're sitting there. Nobody says anything to you. This, this is the thing that I have very common experience when you start on trading floors is everyone says hi and then they just totally ignore you. Mm. And it's kind of your job to like get seen, basically. And then you start, sort of start poke around, like, oh, can I get you a coffee? Can I get you a tea? Um, can I go get your lunch? And that's sort of, that's like weirdly like, I think I sort of just started just getting everyone's lunch for them. Yeah. And I remember this one incident. You, but you're an interest rate trader. Well, I mean, at first I was just an intern, right? So you're just an intern, so you've got no specific... You're just an intern. You, you need to get them to hire you to the desk, basically. Right. And I remember I used to try and get everybody lunch. I remember sort of one of my first, on my, one of my first days, I got a load of people lunch and I took a little note of like how much everybody's lunch cost. And then I put the, the change on the table, exact, exact change next to the trader who paid for the lunches. And the trader just, he just looked at it. You know, like when somebody drops some coins and people just look, he looked at the money and he was like, what's that? And I was like, it's your change. And he was like, it just didn't say anything. And I was like, uh, it's like £4.31. And he just slid it across the desk into his little drawer. And then he looked at me right in the face and he said, on this desk, we keep the change. <laughs> like that. Like, and I was thinking, these guys are fucking mad, basically. Um, <laughs> but that's how it works, basically. And then, you know, I started getting, you know, I, I got a lot of lunches. Um, eventually, they sent me to get like lunch for everyone on the floor. I think they were, it, was this, it was this kind of game dynamic because they knew that I wasn't from that space and they kind of loved it and they were, like played little games with me. So like on the end of my internship, they sent me to buy burgers for everyone on the whole trading floor, which is like fucking 500 people or something, right? Just called me over, Gary, uh, today I'm buying lunch for everyone on the floor. And I knew they wanted me to be like shitting myself. I was like, yeah, fine. So we, I did it, you know, I had to like get everyone involved. And then when I came back, I sat down after delivering burgers to everyone on the floor and they called me, Gary, Gary, you got a passport? And I was like, yeah. So go home and get it, you're going skiing. And that was like, honestly, the funniest thing about that was, I didn't even realize when you went skiing that you were in the mountains, you went to the top of the mountains. And it was like, fucking hell, it was mad. I remember texting my dad, where's my passport on the train? So what did you think you were going like cross country skiing or something? I just, I only knew like Milton Keynes Snow Center is the only thing I could think of. I just thought it was like on a field or something. You, I, you know where I'm from, you don't, people don't go skiing. You know what I mean? I didn't know about that. Um, but then that was how I got the job. And then 2008, I start full time. That was when I became like a full time trader. And then as soon as I hit that desk, the crisis happened. And that was sort of. So when do you start? Because obviously it's, to the best of my recollection now, it's basically August, September. Things really hot up in 2008. I started June 30th, 2008. So it's just a couple of months before things go bang. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And um, I had no idea what was going on, but. The, the crazy thing was the desk I worked on, which was short-term interest rates, which is basically short-term loans, mm. was a very unfashionable desk previous. They literally make loans of like one day, which is like not a massively profitable business, right? Um, and in the credit crisis 2008, it blew up. It became unbelievably profitable. So like they hadn't really attracted all of these sort of new school, like Yale, Harvard types, you know, with all of these like immaculate like shirts with the little monogram on it. It was all sort of old school traders and then suddenly they were making a ton of money. And um, I was just thinking, how do I get me some of this money basically? Mm -hmm. How do I follow these guys? Um, and just desperately trying to get them to tell me like, what, what are you doing? How are you making this money? Like, what, what's happening? And I was trying to figure it out. Um, 
And uh, it turned out, so a lot of what they were doing was basically, it was an American bank and they were lending out loads and loads of dollars. And it was super profitable because everybody needed dollars. And, um, and Citibank at this point is the biggest bank in the world. Yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah. So they were lending a ton of dollars. And I remember sort of, I figured out what they were doing. And I lent a ton of dollars too. And then I was, there was one guy who I worked with who, who was like, he was a scouser. He was from Liverpool. He didn't go to university. And after I put my first big trade on, I went home and I thought, oh, fuck, what if this trade goes wrong? So I went in the next morning. I spoke to this guy, this scouse guy. And he said, um, I said, what's the risk on this trade? And he said to me, this trade will lose money if the global banking system blows up. In which case, you'll lose lo- your job and I'll lose my job and it'll be the end of fucking everything. But that's not going to happen, so we're going to make a ton of money. So you just cross your fingers and hope it works out. Mm. Um, so the first couple of years, all I did was that basically, just lend these dollars. Um, and that was super profitable in 2008, 2009. Then in 2010, that stopped being profitable. I remember this weird thing happened. The Swiss National Bank did something that fucked me and I lost like $8 million in a week. And that's when I realized like, it's not really free money like that. And I have to start figuring out like a smarter way to make money. So your first year, 2008, you make 400,000 pounds. You clear for yourself personally, something like that now. Oh no, that was, that was, so 2008, I started in June, 2008. Yeah. Um, 2009, my boss who, fought, who hired me quit basically in the middle of the year. And- um, How come? I think he made so much money in 2008 that like, he just thought, I'm going to quit. I'm going to like live the dream. I'm right. going to like build my house in California. And that's a whole other story, which, which we can get into. <laughs> but um, he quit and uh, he said to me, you can ask me anything you want. And I said, what do I need to do to make a hundred grand for the bank? At that age, so I would have been 20, just turned 22. A hundred grand in my mind was like the most money you could make like in a year, basically. Mm-hmm. What do I have to do to make a hundred grand bonus? He goes, it's not possible. You need to make $10 million for the bank, he said. I said, all right. I went back put one massive bet on $12 million by the end of the year. And then, yeah, and I was expecting to get paid a bonus of like hundred grand. And I remember going to the meeting room and it was like just under 400 grand on the piece of paper. And I remember looking at it and just being like, I remember, I can remember like it was yesterday. My boss was a massive guy and I pointed at the number and I thought it must be another number. I pointed at the number and I said, is it that? And he said, yeah. And I literally said, wow, that's a lot of money. How old are you? Just 10, 23. Um, and I think what is weird about that, you know, there'll be people who hear that story and they'll be like, that's fantastic, that's amazing. Like a kid from poor background made a ton of money. That's really, really good. And it, and it is good. And, and you know, I wouldn't be able to afford to do what I do now if it wasn't for that. But the, the actual experience of it was like weirdly quite traumatic. I remember seeing, like if I'd have earned 100 grand, I would have gone home to my parents and be like, oh, I got 100 grand. I would have told my mates, oh, I got 100 grand. Um, yeah, I would have told my girlfriend I got 100 grand, but like 400 grand just seemed like an inhuman amount of money. It felt like the kind of money that you couldn't tell anyone about. Mm. It felt like, I felt like, how can I tell my, like, I went out and I sat down next to this guy where I still work, this scouse guy. And he could see I was upset and he said, go out and like sit down. And I remember just thinking like, I think about my dad, you know what I mean? He worked, my dad worked for post office for 35 years and he was probably never making much more than 20 grand. And he used to start work. He used to leave the house at like 5 a.m. And the train mm. used to go past the back of my house. And my mum would wake me up and we'd try and look at him, like wave at him going past the house. And obviously that's dark, you know, you see him and you think about how hard he worked day after day after day for 20 grand a year. And then here's me just turned 23, sit at a desk, you know, for a year, 400 grand. It just seemed like... You're all of a sudden different to everybody you knew, right? Yeah, you're you, sort of disconnected the, to exactly. them. Exactly. It's that, that is a hundred grand is like a gift. 400 grand like buys you out of your family, buys you out of your friend group. I remember like I went around my mate's house 
and we were playing like Pro Evo. And um, they're all talking, they're like, a lot of them worked in finance. Oh, did you get a bonus? Oh yeah, I got five grand. Oh yeah, I got like seven grand. And then one of them said, did you get a bonus? And I hadn't told anyone. And I just thought, you know what? These are like my closest friends. I'm just going to fucking tell them, right? So I told them, oh yeah, I got 395 grand. And you could just like hear like the silence, <laughs> like fill the room of this like, this like shock. And it was almost, and then it started to feel like, it started to feel like a cruel thing to tell people in a weird way. I made this amount of money. And it was, a, and it's, I know it's bizarre, but I think in a weird way, it was a cruel thing to happen to me. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's just, that level of inequality should, and you know, I made a lot more than that in following years, you know what I mean? But like, it shouldn't exist. It shouldn't happen. You know what I mean? It shouldn't. And it, it's, it's, don't get me wrong, right? I think that people who work hard and are talented and, and do good things should make money. I think we should live in a world where that is possible, 100%. But like, people like me and people where I'm from didn't even know that 400 grand was a thing somebody could make. I had no idea. And, and then like, I was thinking if I've made 400 grand, what have the rest of these fuckers made? You know what I mean? I was just looking around me thinking like, what is going on? So yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a mad experience. You were City's most profitable trader globally at one point, is that correct? Yeah, so that was 2011. So basically like... So this is after you've lost the money from... The yeah, so this sort of, just lending the dollar stopped working basically. And I had to realise, I had to think like, we're going to have to, we're going to have to figure out a smarter way to make money. And um, so the history of this is actually quite interesting, right? So I was an interest rates trader. We're going to get a bit technical here, but we'll keep it simple. Um, so... In 2008, all the interest rates in the, in the rich world collapsed to zero because central bank cuts rates, we want to boost the economy, the economy is really shit, so everybody cut their rates. And then our job became basically to bet on when will rates go up again. And rates will go up when the economy recovers, you know. That's a simplification, but you know, that's basically what happens. And interest rates stayed zero from 2008 until this year, basically, 2022, which is 14 years. And in every single one of those years, Markets and economists predicted that rates would go up the next year, which was wrong 12, 13 years in a row, which is interesting, right? Mm. Like I'm, these are the best paid guys in the world to do this thing. And they're wrong year after year. This is like if you studied, you know, weather forecasting at uni and you went to work at like the Met and you saw that every single year, every single day, they're like tomorrow's going to be like sunny and 30 mm. degrees, you know, and they're always wrong. Mm. So, you know, this happened in 2008 and they were like, it'll get better next year. And it didn't. 2009, they're like, okay, it was quite serious. Maybe next year. 2010, they're like, okay, well, just give it one more year. And sort of by sort of late 2010, I'd seen these guys be wrong for two and a half years. And I, I started to think like, maybe they're just wrong. Maybe mm. there isn't a recovery. I, I think the big thing for me was because I came from a poor background and, you know, I, I still had the same friends, the same family. I, I could see that things were getting actively worse for mm. people from where I'm from. And it was like, well, how do you expect, the idea between cut, behind cutting interest rates is you get people spending money, oh, because you can borrow money cheaply, oh, it's great to spend money. But I look at the situation of my friends and family that I grew up with. These guys are losing their homes, right? Their, their parents had property, they'll never own property. So they're getting, they're getting poorer year after year. How the fuck are they gonna start spending money because you give them access to a cheap loan? They don't even get access to that money. They can't go and borrow money at 0%, you know what I mean? So I started to look at this and I started to think, I, I'm, I don't see it happening. I don't see it happening. And, and I guess I was in this sort of quite unique position because there's not many people that go from poor backgrounds to working in trading nowadays. So I could see 
what it was like for ordinary people. And I could also see what it was like for these rich guys working in the city. You know, it's a bunch of millionaires working. Do in the you city, also right? think because you started in 2008, you had no sort of prior expectations, whereas somebody has been in the industry 25 years, they've seen lots of ups and downs. And so there's going to be a, a bunch of cognitive biases where they say, I was here in the mid 80s. I was here in the early 90s. I was here for dot com. This is just the same. But actually, you didn't have any of that because. Yeah. This is yeah, all you knew. I, I guess they're used to interest rates up and down. They weren't used to this sort of flatlining, I think. Um, but, you know, I think. If you consider how long that went on for, you know, even at the beginning of 2020, people were still predicting rates going to go up later that year. Mm. You know, that's 12 years, 12 years of incorrect predictions. It's incredible. I think that, I think that's, you know, we could have a whole discussion about why it is that happens. And, you know, I went back to Oxford 2017, 2019, and I asked one of the professors, we had a, we had a lecture on interest rates. Um, and I went up to him afterwards and I said, why do you think we were, so, we were wrong on this interest rates for so long? And he said, oh, no, we always knew rates would stay zero. And I was like, I didn't know what to say to that because, you know, this is my job. You know, I know for a fact that these guys predicted interest rates would go back up every single year. And I didn't know. What to, I was like, no, you didn't. He was like, yeah, we knew. We knew. I just said to him, well, I'm going to go home. I'm going to send you the data. And then we're going to talk about 2017, it. 2017, he said that. Yeah, 2017. Because even you had Janet Yellen before then putting up US interest rates in like 2014, 2015. They were saying, oh, we're going to try and. Yeah, which, they eventually, which eventually came down again. Yeah. And I said, so I sent him the data and he, he was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we have been wrong for 10 years. And his guy, right, professor of macroeconomics at Oxford University, he's been wrong for 10 years. Not only has he been wrong for 10 years in a row, he's not realised that he's done that. That is the level we are at here of economics. Where, and, 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 but look at this guy, rich guy, rich family, he used to wear a nice snake skin belt, you know what I mean? He doesn't get hurt, does he? This guy's wrong 10 years in a row. He never gets hurt. Of course he doesn't notice. Mm. You know what I mean? I always, you know, I wrote some articles at the beginning of COVID saying like, this is going to cause a massive increase in inequality. It's going to cause a massive increase in house prices. It's going to cause a massive inflationary crisis. Okay. At the same time, Larry Elliott, like chief economics editor at The Guardian, was writing house prices are going to collapse. Okay. That was obviously wrong. Who's punishing Larry Elliott? You know what I mean? But why was, wait, so at the beginning of COVID. Yeah. Because there, there was briefly, a, there was briefly a buyer's market. Because you did have lots of people with like student homes, yeah. buy to let landlords. They just thought, you know what, this is going to be unoccupied for God knows how long. Yeah. The margins are low, get rid. So you got, you did get a big flood of those properties. For a brief moment, yeah. For about three, four months. I remember. And, and it was less that the market fell, there was just uncertainty. So you yeah. could get real value. Yeah. But I think what people were missing was, we knew at the beginning of COVID, the government is going to give a shit ton of money out. And in the end, the government gave out £600 billion, which I want to emphasise is £12,000 for every single adult in the country, okay? That's how much money the government gave out, okay? And if anyone was bothered to do the analysis, which basically nobody was, you could see very quickly that that money is going to go overwhelmingly to richest people in the country. Mm. You could work that out. We can go through the logic of that, right? There's a video on my YouTube where I explain it exactly. You could see £600 billion going to go to the richest people in the country. They're going to fucking buy houses. What the fuck else are they going to do with it? You know, that we're literally talking about 100, 200 grand per person. Mm. Of course, house prices are going to go. And I think there's this real, the, I think the big problem is, number one, there's very few economists from poor backgrounds, right? So they're, they're not really keyed into what's happening. And number two, they don't get punished if they're wrong. They don't get punished if they're wrong. What they don't get rewarded if they're right. What sort of punishment would you like them to see? Because obviously, you mean you mean they beat, they lose legitimacy, and there's no counter incentives, right? If you're, yeah. if you're right, you get loads it's of status. A, I'm not if you're asking wrong. for these guys to be spanked in the streets, right? Yeah. At least be acknowledge that they were wrong. <laughs> you know, no one even said. You know, this guy at Oxford University wrong for ten years didn't even notice. Hmm. You know what I mean? At least have you know. 
I, I, I'm from a poor background, right? I walk onto the trading floor within two years, I'm famous because I'm the guy who gets it right. You know, I've been writing articles for like two and a half years now about COVID. And I'm, and you know, go, go read my articles from the beginning of COVID. Every single thing I said would happen has happened, you know. But, you know, I don't get the attention that Larry Elliott gets. He's, he's wrong in all his predictions. You know, I mean, the problem is, if you don't have any mechanism by which people who are consistently right get recognised and people who are consistently wrong get shown up for being wrong, then you will get shit analysis. Of course you will. It's obvious, isn't it? And not only that, but it is inevitable you'll end up with a posh boys club. Because if you have no mechanism by which people who actually understand but are from don't have the social capital can challenge people who are just chatting shit but do have the social capital mm. then you will just end up how you know how am i gonna people how are people gonna find my article you know what i mean mm. you know whereas in the city i could walk into any skyscraping canary wharf and get paid a million pound a year because these guys will look at my track record and say this guy keeps getting it right so actually, there's more of a sort of meritocratic attitude in, in the city than in journalism or academia. Listen, there is no meritocracy in media. And to be honest, in my opinion, I look at economic analysis in the media. That is not analysis. That is an entertainment product. If you are not taking these guys and rewarding them for being right and punishing them for being wrong, then they are not analysing. They are fucking dancing. That's what they're doing. You know, like, if you want them to be right, pay them to be fucking right. But we're not doing that, are we? We're not doing that. And... and and then if you think at the same time, right, imagine you are an economist who's good, who's really good. You know what's happening, right? You can write an article that's perfectly right and no one will ever fucking read it. Or you can go and work for fucking Bank of America and get paid a million pound a year. You know, that is the system that we've built. And then we're surprised that the economy goes to shit. You know, if you want, if you want good analysis, at the very least, recognise good analysis. This, nobody's even checking the homework here. It's crazy. There is some... To, well, I agree with you entirely. Financial Times, certain journalists, instead Ambrose Evans, Ambrose Evans Pritchard at the Telegraph, for instance, is really good on Russia and mm -hmm. the, the long-term consequences of what's going on there. Generally speaking, I entirely agree with you. And, and like you say, the incentives are much higher to shut your gob and just make loads of money. And the incentives aren't there to actually have top, top finance journalists. And I agree with you at the BBC, which of course is where most people get their media in the UK, in most newspapers, you, you, you might as well not bother being quote-unquote informed because you're not being informed. Yeah. But there are some good sources of news, surely, because you yourself must consume news sources on this stuff. So where are they? Mm, to be totally honest, what I do more than anything else is I trade and I talk to traders. Listen, there must be, there must be, there must be creditable, there must be more credible news sources that at least some legitimacy is given to. Blogs, podcasts, um, you tell me. <clears throat> uh, there are good individuals you have good individuals who have good analysis um, I, I was never really a news reader I hired a guy to sit next to me and read the papers and, and tell me like what's because as great, a great as job a, as a trader you, you need to know what people think yeah. because as a trader you don't make money just by being right you make money by being right specifically when other people are wrong so it's actually like the art of understanding the way in which people are wrong. You know what I mean by that? Because if everybody knows something, it's not monetizable. It's not valuable, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I, I mean, I watch the news now largely because I've moved away from purely financial analysis. And now I'm in a, I'm in a space where what I want to do 
is explain to people what's happening to change the way that they view it and the way that they act. So I need to know what you're being told so I can explain to you why it's wrong. There are good people who do good analysis. There's, oh, I forget the names now. There's the Norwegian guy at Financial Times. I spoke to him, I should remember his name. He's quite good. Um, but to be honest, when it comes to economics, like I, I trade, I trade. That's what I but do. Where, in terms of long-term market signals, in terms of political risk, and you think this might happen or this might happen, where are you, where are you saying, oh, that's good information then? So, so I talk to traders all the, the time. The long-term implications, for instance, of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what that means yeah. for the kinds of the kind of trades you, you'd be involved in. Yeah. Clearly, you need to some information about that because you're not in Ukraine. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important basically to know what you know about what you don't know about. I think that actually, in my opinion... The economic significance, the war in Ukraine is obviously a terrible thing, mm. right? But the economic significance of it in this country, I think has been significantly overplayed, in my opinion. I think that the inflation that we're seeing, specifically in energy markets, mm. of course, it's affected the energy markets, right? But, you know, look what's happening to London housing. Look what's happening to London rents. That, you know, Vladimir Putin didn't do that, you know? And I've been saying from the beginning of COVID, you know, we're, gonna, we're giving £600 billion to rich people. If you don't expect an inflationary crisis after that, then you don't understand money. So, so you would put... Let's say we're at, well, we're, we're at 10% now and, and we don't know where we're going. It, it was scheduled to go significantly higher. We don't know yeah. because there's a big intervention from government. You would say, actually, the inflation we're seeing in this country is more to do with quantitative easing and printing money than Vladimir Putin. I would say it's to do with the, the very large government deficit during COVID and who ended up with that money. I think people, people don't realise that there's, there's two sides of the balance sheet, right? If the government gives that £600 billion, then somebody gets £600 billion. £600 billion is a fucking lot of money, right? That's £12,000 per adult in the entire country. So if you don't have £12,000 more cash now than you had three years ago, someone's got your £12,000. That's a lot of fucking money. And if you, you know, if we assume that that all went to top 10%, right, which I think is a good sort of first order approximation, that means every single adult in the top 10% richest people in the country getting 120 grand cash. That fucking happened. You know, and, and... And where did that cash go? Well, they're going to... Well, I think the thing is, the interesting thing is, you can't get rid of it once it's out there, right? It only circulates, right? So they're going to... First thing they do is they try and buy assets yeah. because that's what rich people do. So that's why we saw this massive boom in the stock market. And that's why we saw this massive boom in house prices. But the thing about that is, that doesn't get rid of the money, right? I try and buy your house. You try and buy my house. We're just swapping the money between us. So the prices go up. You, what you will see is some richer people buying the houses of poorer people. And that will often happen generationally. So, for example, a lot of my friends from poorer backgrounds who've been like saving up really hard 70, 80 grand deposits. Now, nowadays, you can't buy a house with 70, 80 grand deposit in London. Suddenly, they're competing with the kids of richer families. Their parents giving them the 300 grand. And then, so they don't get the house. So what you see is generationally houses that would have been bought by kids from poorer families are now being bought by kids from richer families. So you do see a loss of asset ownership in the poor, but essentially the money doesn't disappear. It just circulates. If the government gives money out until the government taxes it back, people will have more money. And the big question is who will have more money? And that is the question that nobody was asking during COVID. Do you think quantitative easing was a mistake then? Because obviously that, that creation of more money isn't just a response to COVID. That's been the default alongside low interest rates since 2008. That's a really good question. And my answer is actually no. And I think that might surprise some people. When I say what I said, that you know inflation was caused by the government giving money out and by the low interest rates, you might think that I'm opposed to the government giving money out and low interest rates. I'm not. The government had to do that. 
I'm not opposed to furlough at all. I'm not opposed to the massive deficits the government ran during COVID at all. Those had to be done. Otherwise, people would have literally died, right? People would have not paid the rent. People would have become homeless. People would have not been able to eat. Had to be done. But at the same time, if you're giving out £600 billion, you have to do an analysis of who's going to end up with this money. And if that analysis had been done, then we would have seen, well, we're injecting a fucking massive amount of money to the rich here. A massive amount. And then... You know, we had the period of lockdown when that money wasn't damaging because the rich couldn't really spend it mm. because they're locked at home, right? We could have used that one and a half years, two years to say, okay, we have to do this thing which is going to make the rich fucking rich. So we use the time we have to work out a way to tax them effectively to take that money back. You know, if you give £600 billion to the rich and you don't want to see effects, you have to find ways to take that money back. And mm. we had a year and a half where we could have had a sensible conversation about, okay, look, COVID's shit. We had to do this thing. And it's going to massively increase inequality. We need to figure out how to stop that from happening. And we didn't have that conversation because nobody was talking about who's going to end up with this money. So the problem is not that the money was given out. And the problem is not the low interest rates. The problem is we have an economic system here that is very happy to give tons of money to the rich and has no mechanism of reliably getting money from the rich. Mm. That is fucking not sustainable. And uh, what, the thing that really worried me, now you see energy prices going up. What's the solution? 150 billion pounds direct from the government to the energy companies. So if you believe my analysis that the government deficit and increasing inequality caused inflation, their solution is another massive government deficit that will increase inequality. And I went out and I sold a fuck ton of government bonds because I was like, these guys are trying to fix inflation with inflation. Listen, you need to have the systemic ability to take wealth away from rich people. Because there's a massive systemic force to give wealth to rich people. If every time there's a crisis, you give a fuck ton to the rich and you have no mechanism of taking money back from the mm. rich, then you will impoverish and bankrupt your government and your fucking middle class. And we're seeing it in front of our eyes. And what, frustra what frustrates me the most is just a lack of a discussion of, listen, we, in COVID, we gave them 600 billion pounds with no mechanism of getting it back from them. Mm. Well, if, we've actually just reduced their taxes. I mean, that is, I mean, that was the, one of the maddest things I've seen in my life. And um, yeah, I mean, but when I saw that, I, I got very emotional when I saw that. When I saw that, you know, and th this is for you and for me, right? When I saw that, I thought this is because me and people like me have not explained clearly enough to the people of this country mm. that if the government gives you £10 and the rich £1,000, you are getting poorer. Mm. Because in COVID, the average family accumulated like one, two grand cash. And every rich family accumulated like 300 grand cash, okay? And that had the obvious predictable consequences, right? Listen, money is not real resources. If I give you 100 quid and him 100 grand, you have gotten poorer. So after COVID, people had more money. And Explain that, because they would say, no, we both got richer, but okay, they've, just, so, got, they've listen, just got much richer than I have. Let's break this down, all right? Money is not food. Money is not energy. Money is not housing. Money is not healthcare, okay? If we give everybody money, we have not increased the amount of actual resources and assets we have in our society, okay? So you don't make society richer by giving people money. You make society richer by creating and having more resources and assets. So if I give everybody more money, all that happens is the prices go up. But if I give you a bit of money and him a lot of money, then he gets richer and you get poorer because you have a bit more money, but the prices have gone up relative to both of your increases in, in money. So I think this is the thing I want to... And the reason I'm hammering this down is because they did that in COVID and they got away with it. And to be honest, the, the Conservative government lucked out with the Ukraine war because that took the entire blame for the inflation, which in my opinion was caused by their massive increase in inequality. And because they got away with it, I, I'm not surprised to see them do it again because what they did in the tax cuts was quite interesting, right? They cut the taxes on ordinary people by a little bit, 
like 50 quid a month. Mm. And so they, the basic, let's just, for our audience, yes. we've got a bunch of tax cuts here. So corporation tax didn't go up. We'll park that for a moment. The basic rate, which we all pay, cut by 1%. Mm. But that benefits wealthier people far more than ordinary people. Well, yeah, they cut the basic rate by 1%. It doesn't really give you that much more money. It's like 50 quid a month, you mm. know. And, and only if you're like, like a higher middle earner, if you're a low middle earner, it doesn't benefit you at all, right? But they cut your taxes a tiny bit. And then they cut the taxes of millionaires by like 50 grand. Mm. And then my mate called me up. He's from an ordinary background. And, he, and I was explaining it to him. And he was like, you know, I think my mates might be happy because they got this 50 quid tax cut, right? And people need to understand if the government gives you 50 quid and the rich 50 grand, you will have more money and you will get less food less energy, less housing, less healthcare, because money is the asset that we use to determine the distribution of real assets. Money does not make people rich. Money is how we determine distribution. You, know, you, you can have as much money as you want, right? If, you, if it doesn't buy you housing, if it doesn't buy you food, it doesn't, ma it doesn't matter, does it? So people need to understand that because the government has struck on this idea here where we give every poor person a bit of cash and we give every rich person a ton of cash. And then the end result is, Prices go up t a ton and, and, and ordinary people, they don't understand why they're getting poorer. Mm. Why? Because I've got more money. Why is it happening? And it's not just the inflation, obviously, like you said. Wealthy people, they don't need to spend money. They've already got loads of money. So they pump that into assets. And yeah. then, of course, the assets are generally ways for them to make more money because they're living yeah. off the revenues from those assets. And of course, that's the rentierism that poor people find themselves subject I, to. I in housing. Say, yeah, I always say this, you know, we talk about trickle-down economics. If you give them money, that their wealth creators, like they're fucking Gandalf or something, right? If you give them money, they'll boost the economy. Listen, if you give the, these guys money, they're going to fucking buy your mum's house. That is what they're going to do. Listen, my friend's mum's had houses and my friends will never have houses. Those houses are not fucking disappearing. Mm. Those houses are owned by rich people's kids now. That is what this means. This is ordinary families losing their fucking homes and they will, they will never have houses again. Their kids won't have houses. Their grandkids, this, that is what, this, this is serious. You cannot give all of your assets away and expect not to be poor. Not only that, but we're giving the assets away to this group of rich people who are internationally mobile and don't pay any fucking taxes. I think it's, it's you know, you know, I was not born and raised political. I do this because it was my job to look into the future and tell you what is going to happen to the economy. If we do not find a way to tax rich people seriously, the future of this economy is going to be a disaster. It's going to be a disaster because the government's going further into debt. Ordinary families are losing their homes. Ordinary families are going further into debt. And the homes are going to the rich and the debt is to the rich. And it's as you say, what that means then is you pay more rent to the rich. You pay higher mortgages to the rich. So as inequality gets bigger, the cash flows from ordinary families to the rich get bigger which means inequality will get bigger still. So it creates this really negative spiral. You know, <laughs> this is all, it's not an optimistic outlook, but that is why I do what I do. And, but the thing that is most maddening is, and also the thing which can give us a bit of hope, is it's fixable because those assets have not disappeared. They are owned by the rich. And if we fix our tax system, we can, we can, we can get them given back to ordinary families. You've got a quote here, which I'm going to refer to. You've been a successful trader. We've talked about that. You're academically credentialed. We talked about that. I mean, it helps to be good in both fields because then people can't try and discredit you. Uh, you did maths and economics at the LSE, MPhil, like you say, at Oxford. But you've said, quote, throw your textbooks in the bin if you want to really learn about economics. So yeah. you've already talked about that one academic who you thought yeah, wasn't yeah. a serious guy. You're basically saying, look, if you want to know what the story is, don't bother with the sort of fusty dons at these allegedly top universities. Yeah, that is a line from this Scouse trader I used to work with. He was the only trader I worked with who didn't go to university. He's from Liverpool and he, he, work, he worked on the cash desk when he was 18. 
and he worked his way up to being like the top trader at Citibank. And I was a Citibank's top trader in 2011. And he was Citibank's top trader in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2012, 2013. This guy was a fucking genius. And when I got smashed that, when I lost that $8 million that one week, I brought, uh, my instinct as a good economic student was to go and bring my textbooks in and start reading it and being like, what's happening? And he came up to me, just fucking grabbed him and he threw him in the bin. And he was like, listen, how, how fucking old are you? And I was like, I don't know, 23, 24, whatever. You are not going to learn about it from those fucking books. If you want to learn about the economy, go out onto the street, you know, walk down the high street, see what shops are closing down. Look at what the adverts are on the tube. You know what I mean? Is, is there more homeless people that you're seeing? Ask your mum about her financial situation. Ask your friends and your friends' mums about their financial situation. That is the fucking economy. And look, I'm not saying nobody should study economics, all right? But you, you, you should be using your study of economics to get you into a situation where you can analyse the real world. And I'm going to use an example to, to illustrate the problem that we have here, okay? So this professor, the, the snakeskin belt professor, he, um, he... What was the belt? Do you know what the belt make was? A Gucci or something like that? I didn't ask him. I don't think he'd tell me. He's not my biggest fan. Um, he, he wrote a paper where he said that if the European Central Bank didn't do QE, European GDP would be like 4.7% lower, something like that. And I was quite pleased to see him make a firm prediction for once because these guys very rarely make firm predictions. And I put my hand up and I said to him, do you think that's right? And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, do you think he's right? He's like, I don't understand the question. I was like, do you think if that hadn't have happened, GDP would be 4.7% lower? He was like, I don't know what you mean. And this guy, he is not analysing the economy. He's writing fucking papers. You know, he doesn't care if it's right. He doesn't even think about whether it's right. You know, I asked him once, why do you think people are not, have not been spending money since 2008? And he said, I'm not really sure, but I think it's because of an exogenous shock to consumption savings preferences. And yeah, I've asked a lot of people. Nobody ever told me that was fucking why. You know what I mean? And I think... But maybe they said it in other words, which is there was this global financial crisis, which then changed people's consumption habits. The more you understand what that means, the madder it is. Because an exogenous shock is a technical term Mm. referring to economic modelling. It means something happened outside of our model. All right. And I've asked him something about the real world. And his answer is something changed outside the model. That is fucking insane. That is an insane thing to say. And And a professor should be... He should be ashamed to say something like that. So what he's saying the global financial crisis was an exogenous shock. Exactly. So, so look, you cannot describe things in the real world as exogenous shocks. Yeah. That means something outside the model changed. Well, no, for instance, so like you could say in the early 1970s, you have a massive rise in inflation because there is an exogenous shock, which is the global oil crisis. Yeah, but you say what the shock is. Yeah. You know, you say it happened because of the oil crisis. Okay, yeah. something over there changed. Yeah. But you can't just describe a real world change as an exogenous shock in general. What, something changed on fucking Jupiter or Mars? So you he was know. just saying long words because he didn't really have a proper and this explanation. Is, the problem is, he. But the, first he's obfuscating his own lack of knowledge. But the biggest problem is he thinks that's a legit answer. And that is the problem when you have people who, these guys live so much in the models and care so little about the real world that... They don't even realise that they're talking about models anymore. You, you need to be coming to grips with the real world and what is happening in the real world. And, and this is why I get frustrated about the lack of sort of class representation in economics, because they can get away with that because they're fucking rich and they don't get hurt. You know, whereas it's, it's my mates who fucking lose their fucking homes. It's interesting. I, I remember having a sort of interaction with a, an economist recently. Actually, I think he was formerly at the Bank of England. I can't remember what it was. He was on some 
subcommittee. He wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't a big cheese, but he's a relatively sort of esteemed economist. And I think I said some throwaway remark, like somebody says something about growth and I said, mate, it's a little crap. Go down a mm. high street. You know, yeah. I live in, I live in Portsmouth. Mm. I, I go down the, I can go down the town centre, city centre. I can tell you all Bournemouth where I'm from. Yeah. We ain't growing and we're, we're mm. not going to see real meaningful economic growth for a long time. And he said, well, that's literally why we have economics. So we don't have to like go down the street and see what's going on. Oh my God. But what's crazy <laughs> is the Bank of England even has methodologies, which include survey data going mm. to talk to people and saying, how do you feel? We have, you know, survey data about um, consumer confidence, business investment confidence. But like you say, like they just think it's the models and like this is reality. And the actual living organism out there where we do these transactions in real life, that's that's just, oh, forget about it. That doesn't matter. Yeah, well, what's the, but what's the point? If it, You know, I always remember when Russell Brand was getting involved in the point. And a lot of my mates from back home like Russell Brand. He's from not far where I'm from, right? When he was, and he went on Newsnight. And at that time, it was E15 Mums. You remember E15 yeah. Mums? A bunch yeah. of mums in Stratford who were losing their homes and were getting kicked out of the area where they, where they lived. And he'd spoken to them and he went on and he spoke to, it was Evan Davis at BBC. And I thought he, he gave quite a, like a emotional, like, you know, a genuine like plea for like the, the plight of these people. Look what's happened to these people. And Evan Davis turned around and showed him a 150 year graph of per capita wage growth. 150 year graph, right? Which is, and it's an average, right? It's an average, right? So that could be dragged up by the super rich, right? Yeah. And he showed him this graph and he said, well, you know, I, you know, I can see what you're saying, but look, you're wrong. I've showed you this 150 year graph and it's, this, that is sickening to me. That is sickening to me because here's a guy who's telling you, look, people from where I'm from are losing their homes. And the guys turn around and say, well, actually, I've done the fucking numbers and it's, everything's fine. And, you know, he, Evan Davis can say that to me because I've got fucking two economics degrees and I can turn around to him and say, well, that's a fucking average. Who fucking cares if it's just a bunch of fucking millionaires dragging it up? Doesn't help my mates. Doesn't help the E15 mums. Russell Brand's a fucking comedian. You can't show him 150. It's fucking. Was that? Was it GDP? What was it? It was what per capita wage growth. I think you can find. You can go over look at it on YouTube. But it, I, I mean, but that's the full story. It's like look. After you get the Industrial Revolution for the first 40, 50 years, there isn't actual meaningful improvements in living standards. That yeah. only happens when you get industrial action strikes, revolutions, yeah. riots, because the ruling class realise, mm. okay, well we can't do this forever. And, and, and the thing is, Evan Davis will know something like that. It's called, you know, it's called the Engels Pause. It's named after Frederick Engels. Interestingly enough, we're going to the next question. Evan Davis was one of the people who uh, pioneered the poll tax policy. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, he did. No, he, just he raising in my estimation even more. Yeah, he worked He worked in a think tank in the late 80s. I can't remember which one it was, so I won't say. But it's one of these sort of pro-Thatcherite pro think tanks. And, and he was one of the, the minds behind the poll tax policy, which is mm -hmm. one of the most unpopular economic policies in the history of this country. And now he's just viewed as sort of some centrist, you know, clever BBC political economics finance voice. Yeah. I mean, it shows you how extreme those voices really are. Let's talk about the Tory mini budget. Yeah. Um, which became this massive news story. Mm -hmm. People who are watching this probably heard, I mean, look, I, I know what guilts are, but I don't talk about them very often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They heard lots of words like guilts for the first time. Just c kind of briefly explain what actually happened. Okay, so yeah, let, let's break it down from basics. So the very first thing is they announce, um, a big package of spending and also tax cuts. Um, the big thing which wasn't expected was they had this cut of the 45p rate, which the first thing to say is that rate kicks in at 150 grand. It doesn't affect you if you're in 150 grand because it's only above 150 mm. grand. So really, you're only significantly cutting tax on people who earn like 200, 300, 400 grand or a million pound a year. So it's a big tax cut specifically for very high earners. 
Markets weren't expecting that. And traders looked at that. And so the next thing to say is, you know, these were unfunded tax, um, tax cuts. And what that means is the government is planning to borrow that money. So, you know, it means we're getting less money in, we're having to spend more money on things like energy, we're gonna borrow the difference. And when you borrow money, when the government borrows money, it doesn't just come out of thin air, they borrow it from people, essentially from rich people, and those decisions of whether to lend it or not are made by traders. And the traders look at the government and they think, well, you know, COVID's finished now, and we're in more ordinary economic times, and you're planning to run a massive deficit just to stuff rich people's pockets with cash, right? And you know, if you're going to run massive deficits in normal times, you know, you don't have to be a genius to be like, well, how are you going to pay that back then, basically? And traders basically thought, okay, well, this is not a coherent plan. So probably one of two things will happen. You're a student of history. You will know that historically, when governments have borrowed massive amounts of money, the way they've paid it back normally is through inflation. So if you have very high inflation, prices go up, prices go up, and wages also go up, and your tax take rises significantly, the debt stays the same size because it's fixed in nominal terms. And then it's easy to pay back. That's how the Second World War debt was paid back. So traders are looking at this thinking, well, they're not serious about paying it back. So maybe they're going to inflate it away. Not only that, but they're giving a, a crap ton of money out. So that's going to cause inflation. So they start selling the pound because you don't want pounds if it's going to be inflation, right? You know, it means, basically it means the pound is worth less. You can't get as much for it. They start selling the pound. Pound starts falling. The Bank of England, whose job is to keep inflation at 2%, look at that and they see okay number one government's giving a crap ton of money out number two pounds falling which means our imports going to cost more the inflation situation is looking even worse mm. so people are looking at the bank of england and thinking okay they're gonna rise rates raise rates massively and this is in the context of already even before the budget we're talking about rates going up to five five and a half percent so suddenly they're thinking okay maybe rates are going to go up to six and a half seven percent and if you know the bank of england's going to raise rates then you're gonna you're not gonna lend to the government unless you can get a similar rate, right? You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lend to the government for zero if I can get four or five percent from the Bank of England. So suddenly the Bank of England bond the, the government bonds also go up to four and a half percent. And this creates a panic, basically, because everybody starts selling the government bonds. Pension funds, a lot of people's pensions are invested in government bonds, they start collapsing. And it basically just creates a broad market panic because traders are looking at the government and thinking they, they don't have a plan. They don't have a plan. Like They're not going to pay the debt back. Are they going to inflate it away? The central bank's going to raise rates. People start thinking, well, if rates go up to 5 6 7%, what does that mean for mortgages? You know, I think this is the big question, right? You know, if the Bank of England rate goes up, your mortgage will go up. And, you know, we all know how big mortgages are, especially in London, but also in the rest of the country. And if you can fund that at 2%, fine, but can you fund it at 10%? Mm. Can you fund it at 8%? Well, there's this amazing data, isn't there, which says basically... <clears throat> Obviously, people love to talk about 1990, 15% interest rates. But because obviously house prices are so much higher now, people have got much larger mortgages. Actually, interest rates at 5 6% now would feel like 15% in 1990. Yeah. And this seems kind of lost on yeah. a lot of analysis. People need to, yeah, exactly. You know, house prices are a lot, lot higher now than they were in the 80s. And, you know, the reality of the situation is a lot of people, you know, even people who are not that poor, are going to be brought into situations where they can't pay the mortgage, you know. A lot, millions of people, you know, that's, and then you start questioning, you know, the economy of the whole country. You know, it's these guys. And, and the maddest thing of it all is this, this situation was created simply so the government could give a tax cut to millionaires. And it, it's one of the maddest things I've ever seen. Um, and 
it created this carnage. Eventually, the Bank of England was forced to come in and agree to start lending money to the government again. You know, there's talk about is this QE, is this not QE? But the, the Bank of England eventually came in and backstopped the, the bonds, the government bonds, start to lend money to the government. Um, and, you know, I talk to traders and I, they're looking at the government and they're just thinking, what are these guys playing? It's such a fuck up. I, you know, I, I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, this was the plan. This was not the plan. This was not the plan. I think they thought they'd get away with it. And um, yeah, they couldn't. But, you know, even now they've basically backed backed away, you know, they U-turned on it. And I, I predicted they would U-turn. I put a video on Sunday. The, the reason I predicted that U-turn, by the way, is because I started it's getting- on the 45p On the 45p yeah. top rate. is because I started getting texts from people I don't get texts from. You know, like, I, I live in these worlds now, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book and I'm in this sort of publishing world, and, you know, I'm in the media world now. I'm getting texts from people who are not poor saying this policy's fucked. And it's because they've got mortgages, right? You know, they've got massive mortgages. A lot of people who are not poor have got big mortgages. You know, it's not the poorest people who have the mortgages because they can't get mortgages, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, these guys work in the media. They work, And, you know, even these guys, some of them, you know, I guarantee you those Tory backbenchers, they or their kids have got mortgages. Mm. You know, so what the Conservative government did here, you know, you know, I don't need to tell you, these guys have been hurting the poor for a long time. But suddenly they took this big step to hurt homeowners. And, you know, a lot of, People in the media are homeowners and I, I just thought the media is not going to accept this. And if the media doesn't, you know, they need the media to, to go with it for it to happen. I thought the media wouldn't accept it. They're going to have to back down. It eventually did. Well, that's the big difference to austerity, isn't it? And that's kind of what frustrates me the most with this stuff is that after 2010 to 2015, the bottom 25% of this country were destroyed. They were crushed. Mm. And the middle class, the upper middle class, like you say, if you're high, you can be even ultra rich if you're highly leveraged on loans for property you might yeah. be a buy to let landlord or whatever mm -hmm. you're terrified by all of this right and they got a glimpse of that and within a week like mm. it was just amazing to see how radicalized they became and yeah. it's like welcome to reality for the rest of the for the country right yeah but i think this is kind of you know the rich have got unbelievably richer in the last 15 years um and personally i think that the conservative party is basically behind this but there comes to a point where you've cut everything you know the welfare state is cut to a bare minimum now if they cut that back further it's going to be and it looks like they might you're going to see real it's going to be bad right and it's difficult to cut stuff there but then then how do you make the rich richer how do you keep making the rich richer and you know the only assets left are the houses of the middle class now you know so it comes to a point where you know you need to hit those people if you want to make the rich richer anymore you know because the economy is not growing so the only way the rich get richer is taking assets from the rest of us. And, you know, we, we've cut their taxes, we've cut, you know, government services. Um, and now I think the conservatives are in this bind where it's like, how do you keep that machine going without hitting your core voter base, which is homeowners? You know, and I think they're, I think they're really stuck here because, you know, they, the only thing you can do here to prevent an economic collapse is tax the rich. And it's like their reason to be that they can't do that. Mm. So I think that they they tried this thing, which is, well, why don't we... If you, if, you, if you look at it, in a sense, it's a clever strategy, right? Because it worked in COVID. Give ordinary families a bit and the rich a lot. Um, but the problem is, and I think this is like a great irony and something you know, people who are on the left, such as yourself and myself, should ask ourselves, the people who stopped that, it wasn't us, it was financial markets. Mm -mm -mm. And we need to be sending that message, look, they are taking your assets and giving it to the rich and they're making you poorer. And you know, I think this is an opportunity 
Because the Conservatives need that wedge to be between the middle and the poor. Yeah. They need that wedge to be there. But at the same time, there's nothing left to take from the poor. So, you know, we need to convince the middle, look, these guys are not going to help you in the long run. You know, mm-hmm. where are your kids going to live? How's your kid going to afford a house? Where are your grandkids going to live? Yeah. You know, we, and we need to make the explanation, look, I know they're giving you money, but they're giving the rich a ton of more money than they're giving you. And that will make you poorer. We, we need to build that, understanding what i think is ironic is sort of the right has sort of built itself on economic credibility and like the empowerment of the individual and yet they are destroying the financial lives of ordinary families mm. and i think it's, it's a great failing of us that we haven't managed to explain to ordinary families how bleak their future is on this path and that's you know that's what i try to do on my youtube that's like my sort of mission to explain look mm. and then so I th- it's it's where we are now is bad but that creates this opportunity to build this broader coalition yeah. that, that, that unites the middle and, and, and poorer people and says, look, this doesn't work for any of us. One of the most frustrating things for me, though, is <clears throat> people are saying, this is the Tories, and then when Labour come back in, you know, things will be fantastic. Some things will be obviously be significantly better. But like you say, our economic model is about generating revenues for a certain group of people. They're looking around for sources of wealth. What are they? NHS and like you say that the housing assets of the middle class in this country and they will gobble them up because that's how it works whoever the government is that's where the pressure will come from housing 2023 since mm-hmm. we're talking about it, what's going to happen to the housing market? You said that you were right when Larry Elliott was wrong about yeah. house prices during COVID. What happens next year? So I'm actually quite confident, and most people won't agree with me on this, that in the medium to long term, house prices will go up. And the reason for that is because the government's giving a ton of money up. And, and that money's ending up with the rich. And that, that will, you know, rich will buy assets and that will push broadly assets up. Obviously, in the short term, we've got massive headwinds, which is this massive increase in interest rates. So I think in the short term, anything could happen. Um, I actually think, so I was of the opinion that interest rates would come back down because ordinary families, you know, the bottom 70, 80% are being so squeezed by what's happening that they will not be able to spend. And that means inflation will be quite short lived. And that means the rates will come back down. But then what I saw was that the government is planning to fix that by running another massive deficit. Mm. And, you know, I know you know your history. This has happened before, right? If a government gives out a ton of money, that creates inflation and then tries to deal with it by giving out a ton of money. That does not bode well for long-term inflation and the long-term value of the currency. Um, So I sort of started to think, well, actually, maybe we could enter a bit of a spiral here where inflation stays high and interest rates stay high. But then what happened is the market rejected that. So I think it, it depends on what the government does. And unfortunately, both outcomes are bad, right? If the government decides to just churn money out, which ends up going, ending up with the rich, then you will see a big rise in interest rates and a big rise in inflation. And that causes this, this kind of conflict, right? Because in the long run, assets have to go up, but people can't get mortgages. And I think what that would lead to in the end is basically people who have used mortgages will have to sell their houses to the people who have the cash. Mm. Because, I mean, you and I sit here and you think, oh, interest rates go up. That makes it harder to buy a house. A ton of, lot of people don't need a mortgage to buy a house nowadays because the really rich are stacking up so much cash. And th- they are the guys who get paid the high rates of interest on this cash. Um, but now it looks more likely, and this is very up in the air, we don't know what the government's going to do, that they're going to move towards a kind of austerity light model. And I think that will probably take us, if they do that, to a more post-2008 situation where it's immiseration for ordinary people. Inflation will eventually come down because the middle class has their spending power so badly hit. 
um, and house prices end up going up because the rich have so much money and they, they need they want they want assets they want to buy they want to buy things with that money um, and I think that think that's the bigger risk because I think people don't realize how much it a lot of people in the middle of society economically don't realize how much it hurts their family, especially the kids and their grandkids when house prices go up. Um, I think that is the risk, but medium to long term, I'm very confident that house prices will go up. And, and you know, that's a very, that's a very um, anti-consensus view at the moment. But the fact is, and this is the thing people keep missing and have missed this at the beginning of COVID, the rich are stacking up so much cash here mm. and they're not going to sit on it. They're going to use it to buy assets. And I think, I think one thing that will have to happen is the government will end up being forced to relax mortgage requirements mm. because politically- They're already doing this, right? They're talking yeah, about 50-year mortgage products and whatnot. They need to keep people being homeowners, but they also want to make the rich richer. Well, how do you do that? Bigger mortgages. Then you can own your home technically, you own your 800, 900 grand home, but you also owe 800 grand debt to the rich. So you, you've got the home, but they've got the actual wealth. Mm. So I think that will happen. Um, and I think the way that we fight that is we have to make this connection between the distribution and the quality of life of ordinary people. We have to make that connection because if we don't make that, people's lives get worse and they don't understand why. They're like, well, I've got more money, my house price is going up, I should be richer. But if, if you are getting relatively poorer, then you, you will get less stuff. You know, We've had in the last three years, the biggest and fastest ever increase in inequality in the country and the biggest and fastest decrease in living standards in, in peacetime and no one's connecting the two. And I think it's such an opportunity that we're missing. We need to say, look, you are getting poorer because of that increase in inequalities. It's not, it's not a complicated connection. You know, you increase inequality, you, you improve their living standards, you decrease yours. I'm kind of surprised, actually, the middle class aren't more angry about it. Like the people that shop, shop at Waitrose, very mm. affluent, looking to retire in a couple of years. There's many, many people like that who are very, very, I'm not saying they all vote Labour or Tory or Lib Dem. They do all three or they don't vote at all. But they know that they're really fucking their kids and their grandkids. They know that. Oh, that's the connection we need to make. But, they, but they know that, don't they? I mean, because there's, there's polling out there, for instance, about should house prices fall, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And actually over 50% of the public say it would be in the public interest for house prices yeah. to fall. That doesn't mean they want house prices to fall yeah. because it's not necessarily in their rational self-interest, but they know what needs to happen. Yeah. So there must be, there's a lot of guilt out there, surely amongst those people. You know, there's this article which always appears in the newspapers, which is how I bought a house yeah. by saving up and stop buying coffees and famously it always has like in there and then I got 300 grand for my mum like hidden in there those articles in my opinion are to assuage the concerns of older property owners because older property owners which is massively the voting base of the conservative party have been to a large degree protected you know so you know my parents have always been poor but they own their own property and that means that very likely they'll be able to live to some degree comfortably until their retirement. They'll probably have to dissave that property, right? And they'll lose the, the home. But they've been protected, even though they've been poor their whole lives, right? But if they were to look more broadly and to look at their kids and say, oh, well, you know, how are my kids gonna be? They'd be like, they'd have to look realistically and be like, fuck, that's what they earn. That's the house prices. What's their pension? What's their retirement look like? How do but, they have elderly but care? But people don't wanna think about that. Mm. And then if the media tells you, well, listen, don't worry. You know what kids are like. They're a bit silly. They waste their money. They'll sort out. They'll stop buying the coffees. They'll stop buying that stuff and they'll be okay. Those articles are there to tell. And, you know, it's it's easy to convince someone something they want to believe, right? Mm. You know, those guys go out there and, and sell to older people that we, we you're protected and we know it might look bad for your kids, but don't worry. We've got that. They don't have that. 
And we need to counter that message. And it's not easy because our message is in some ways unpalatable, which is if we stay on this path, your kids and your grandkids will have very, very difficult economic lives. But we need to make that case. And, you know, those are the people in a sense that we need to win. And, you know, it's their kids and their grandkids being hurt. And we need to find a way to communicate to them clearly and compassionately so they don't feel attacked. Look, we are trying to protect your kids and your grandkids. We're not attacking you. You know, where are your kids going to live? What is their life going to be like? Are your kids going to be able to afford to have kids of their own? You know, that is the message that I think we need to be making. If there's a young person watching this and they're thinking, I really want to get on the housing ladder. Yeah. Um, and then there's loads of calculations at play, right? Do I need to maybe move? Um, what should I prioritize, et cetera, et cetera? Presumably you would still, it's not often on Navarro Media, we talk about yeah. financial advice, but presumably you would therefore say to them, given what you said five minutes ago yeah. about you think house prices will continue to go up, that they should do that. I've been saying this, you know, consistently. If you can don't buy wait, property. Don't wait for the market to go down. If you can do it, get on the ladder. If you can, if you can, listen, if you don't have property, that's not a flat position. You're short one property because you've got to live somewhere. You know, the first thing you should be looking to do, and I, and I totally understand that in today's economy, that means taking 300, 400, if you're in London, 600, 700 grand of debt maybe. And that is risky and that is unappealing. And I wish that we were not in that situation. But the truth is, if you don't own a property, you are in a very precarious financial position. And the, the best way you can get yourself out of that is to get yourself a property. And you know, I, I wish that didn't mean taking a massive, massive mortgage. And, and I can't pretend to people that you're not taking a massive financial risk buying a property. But the truth is, you are also taking a massive financial risk not buying a property. Because look what's happening to rents. Look what's happening to house prices. You know, there's people in London now, they don't even know where they're going to live. You know, and, the, you know, if you don't have a property, you are short one property. You need to get that just to make yourself secure. And, and, and I have to say when I say that, that I know... I know full well that that is advice that is impossible for a lot of people. And I understand that. Of course. Um, but that is, you know, I have to tell people the honest truth. Um, and, and if you are in a situation where you can't, then, you know, support me, follow my channel, people like you, so we can come out and explain, look, that it could be possible if we change things. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll provide an example here. So I left, I left London because I'm with my now wife because we wanted to have children and we knew that we had to own somewhere to do that because we we couldn't we'd love to rent if you had five year ten years you didn't have massive increases etc and kind of sort of security around housing that you say maybe have in Germany we don't have that here mm. so we knew that we had to buy somewhere that meant we had to move out of London we did buy somewhere um, on the south coast and doing that just just open my eyes so much as to it's even worse than you think if you're renting how rigged the system is the minute we we, we access the mortgage we didn't pay any um stamp duty that went mm. uh we then that house in two years has gained more in value than i've earned working mm. we actually bought in a really good moment right at the beginning of the covid crisis where lots of like i say sort of student property developers just wanted to get rid of their assets right yeah and I just feel like, and then as we're remortgaging, fortunately we remortgaged just before all this happened. Yeah. You've got people saying, yeah, you can you can borrow against the increase in the value of the house. Yeah. And you think, this is nuts. Yeah. And yet there are tens of millions of people in this country who think it's not normal, not acceptable. They're virtuous. And it's yeah. like, you keep on being rewarded for being lucky and then you get rewarded again and rewarded again. The people who are actually down on their luck because they couldn't get the initial cash capital for the deposit, they keep on being punished. And yeah. I just feel like, how do we get that? I know, I know renters know they're in a bad situation, but it's like, mm. it's so much worse than you even realise. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, you know my channel, it's, it's mainly about sort of economics and politics, but we do do sort of, we talk about investing, we talk about buying property. And um, it's hard because I get so many messages like, you know, what, what can I do to make money? And the truth is like, you know, in the last years, we've seen this big increase in sort of crypto and online trading. And um, it sells this dream that you can sort of invest your way to wealth. But the truth is, you know, like, I, I live off of my assets. You know, I'm a wealthy individual. I live off of my assets. You know, if you come in, if you come to me with like 500 grand, then and you can, if you make 5% a year, you can make 25 grand, you can live off that. If you come to me with 10, 15 grand, you make 5% a year, you know, you're not even going to make a hundred pound. You know, so it's sort of, <laughs> this is, and the thing is, I want to tell people this, buy a property if you can, because it's good financial advice, but I just know it's impossible. And then that's why I think what's really interesting you look at the journey that Martin Lewis has been on. Mm. Martin Lewis, money-saving expert, I guess people know. He is this guy that's like, protect your interests, do what's good for you, change your mortgage provider, change your electricity provider. And now he's coming out with, you have to fight the government. Because, because, we need a revolution. Because the problem is, they, the rich have all the money and all the assets. You are not going to beat them in that game. The only power you have, the only power you have is that there's more of you. And if you try and use that by trading crypto, you don't use that power. It's like the, it's like the Kung Fu movies where 100 guys fight Bruce Lee one at a time. You know, we need to explain to people that being political is the best way to protect your financial interest as an individual, as a family, as a community, because it genuinely is. I genuinely believe that. And if you don't do that, you know, this thing recently where we suddenly saw, you know, a lot of like nice well-off people messaging me, oh, my mortgage rate's going to go up and then the government backs down. That is what happened when, when you act politically as a community. You force government to change. And I also understand that a lot of people are struggling financially and they struggle to have the energy to act politically. And, you know, if you don't have anything to give, don't give anything. But if you, if you have a little bit of space, a little bit of energy, you need to engage with this because you are under attack. Your houses are under attack. Your living stands are under attack. And the only way to push back is to be political. And, and you know, I, know I come from a poor background and people where I grew up don't want to be political. But the truth is, this is what happens if you, you're not political. You know, there's a fight going on. If you don't fight it, you lose. Mm. Yeah. Going back to that thing about um, renting and home ownership. Yeah. Because, of course, if you say, well, we need, and I believe this, we need house prices to go down at least 10, 15% and then mm -hmm. stagnate basically for 20 years. Mm. And then somebody would say, well, that means that somebody who's just bought a property here, and there might be a young viewer of yours living in, I don't know, Leicester, right? And they've just bought a nice terraced house, nothing special, 230 grand, and they're going to go into negative equity. Mm. Okay, they go into negative equity, let's say for 18 months. I'd still rather be in their shoes, yeah. paying towards an asset, which at least in the medium to long term is going to be making cash. Than renting, I don't, I, I don't understand how people think the negative. You say negative equity, and people go, "Oh my god!" They start panicking. Mm. It's like renting is much worse than negative equity. Yeah. I was renting in London for fifteen years. I lost about eighty-five grand renting. I've got nothing to show for it. Yeah, and yet in the popular imagination, somehow negative equity is like way worse than renting. Yeah, I think what I say is the problem actually is the house price to wage ratio. If you think about it, that's the problem. You know, it's it's that's gone up massively. You know, mm. twenty years ago, thirty years ago, that was like three or four and mm. now it's like in London 20, 30 or more so what you really want you can fix the problem without house prices coming down if you allow wages to rise mm. and I think what's interesting is in the last 20, 30 years so we have the Bank of England who have this mandate to keep inflation down except housing inflation 
Exactly. It doesn't look at house prices. That inflation does not include house prices. So we have a mechanism that allows house prices to go up, but does not allow wages to go up. And because people want to avoid negative equity, we do not allow house prices to come down. So we've created an unfixable problem. If you allow house prices to go up and you simultaneously will not accept falling house prices or rising wages, then that problem is unfixable. And I think we need to accept that we have a problem here and we need to we need to look realistically why is this so big and how do we bring wages up in my opinion the reason that this multiple has become so big is because the rich are so fucking rich now and these guys buy assets it's not just houses that have gone up land price has gone up stocks have gone up luxury cars have gone up luxury art has gone up gold has gone up every single asset has rocketed in price because the rich are unbelievably rich people need to understand ultimately there is a competition here for who owns the assets and if you allow the rich to be unbelievably rich, uh, think about it like this, right? Imagine you are, Elon Musk is a billionaire or whatever, right? but imagine you've got 100 million quid. Imagine that's your, your net worth, 100 million quid. You will make on that wealth about 5 million pounds a year. Let's say four. You make 4 million pounds a year just for getting out of bed. How much do you spend? Per day? Per year. I could live on 15 grand a year easily. Well, you're making four million pounds a year. So yeah, no, but say, honestly, I mean, as me being a schlock, okay, thirty grand a year, forty yeah, grand a year. Yeah, but this is a, a sensible person would would sit, would spend two hundred, three hundred grand a year, live a life of luxury, yeah. and use the other three point seven million pounds to buy more assets. Mm. That's what they do, and it's it's not that they're evil. I, I don't hate these people; they're not bad people. It's just if you're super rich, you have a massive income, mm. and it happens automatically. You just put it in the stock Those market. Those the incentives. Yeah, yeah you know, it, and that's so. You create this vacuum of wealth that sucks wealth out of ordinary families. So, of course, house prices are going to rise because they have got so much money. They're going to push it up. Let me ask you a question that actually relating to this. Because at Labour Party conference, Keir Starmer outlined a policy <clears throat> and he said he wanted home ownership to go from 65 to 70%. Mm -hmm. It was 70% in 2003. So, yeah. important to say, we've, we've gone backwards, right? And that they would do this basically through some government-led mortgage scheme. Presumably, they would provide deposits to people. I, yeah. I don't know how they would do it. They could be subprime mortgages, presumably, which are backed by the state. I have no idea. That, to me, sounds like oh, you're only going to further inflate the mortgage market, though, because, of course, going from 65 to 70% again means you've got a massive increase in demand. Good. I'm happy yeah. to do that. But that doesn't sound like a solution to me if you're saying we're going to help home ownership yeah. by increasing prices. And again, they're going to outstrip wage increases. I think this is what, this is what happens when you, when you don't deal with the fundamental problem that inequality is increasing massively. You know, how do you keep people in homes when inequality is increasing massively? You know, if you have this constant flow of wealth and mm. assets from ordinary families to the rich, then how do you keep them in their homes? The only way to do it, because it, homes are ultimately the largest form of wealth in the country. The only way to do it is have massive increase in, in debt. And this is, if you start looking for sort of technocratic solutions, this is what will happen. You, you just end up putting people into more and more debt. And I think that is what will happen. And we need... People need to understand that you cannot be rich without assets. And the current setup sees an enormous flow of assets and wealth and money every year from ordinary families to the rich. You know, you make 30 grand, you spend all of that on mortgage, rent, food, bills, energy. That money doesn't disappear. It goes to the owner of your house, the owner of your mortgage, the owner of the food, the owner of Tesco, the owner of the energy companies, right? Mm. You earn 30 grand, you give all of it to the rich. And it is that guy, Rishi Sunak is worth 700 million pounds, right? You know. He will make every year, he'll make 20 million pounds on that every single year. And that, that's where your mortgage payment goes. You know, so if you create a system where there's this enormous flow of money, wealth, assets from ordinary families to the rich, then year after year, generation after generation, ordinary families will get poorer. 
And this fundamentally needs to be fixed. And until we grasp this problem, life will get worse and worse. That is exactly why I do the job that I do. I don't need to do this. You know what I mean? I've, I've made a lot of money and I could keep making more money. I could go live on a beach in the Philippines. But poverty will explode if we don't deal with this. Let's talk about deficits. It's a word that's not mentioned anymore. It was very, it was very common between 2010 and 2015. Um, the Tories promised to eliminate the deficit by 2015 when yeah. they came into government with the Liberal Democrats in 2010. We've been running a deficit since 2010. Actually, it's important to say we've been r- running virtually permanent deficits since the late 1970s. For the Tories, quote-unquote, balancing the books is always mm. this, this big watchword. Are they ever going to balance the books? Which is to say, are they ever going to preside over a situation where actually they bring in more through general taxation than they spend through public spending? Because they promised to do that for years. It never happens. I think it will probably never happen. Okay, so, you know, lots of people have lots of strong opinions on this. Governments don't need to run surpluses. You can run a deficit. The reason is because deficits get eroded over time by both economic growth and by inflation. So your, your debt is fixed in nominal terms. Inflation pushes all the prices up. So if you have growth of, nowadays you don't get much, but if you get 1%, 2%, if you have inflation of 2 3%, then your deficit is naturally falling relative to the size of your economy by 4 or 5% every year. So you can afford to run a 4 or 5% deficit over time. You can, if that's what you want. And it's, it's, I'm not opposed to deficits at all. Um, I think the last few years have seen some people sort of push in this direction of let's run massive deficits. And... I think the deficit in COVID was necessary. I think the big problem that this sort of people saying let's run massive deficits is it totally defangs people like me saying let's tax the rich. Because if you turn around to me and say there's no problem with deficits, even massive ones, Mm. why tax the rich? We just run a massive deficit. And then what you do is you politically enable things like COVID where a massive crisis led to a £600 billion wealth transfer to the rich. So actually, you think the MMT people, the modern monetary theory people, they've got it completely wrong. They're providing the sort of intellectual foundations. If they're saying, and not all of them do say that, we need to run massive deficits. Don't worry about class struggle. Don't worry about inequality. Yeah. Actually, what they're doing is providing a license to yeah, you know what? the I transfer of wealth from yeah. poor to rich. I don't want to mischaracterise them because it's a big community and different people believe different things. And I think the sort of, you know, the, the high priests of it, the people who sort of really into it, often they will say, well, actually, MMT does support taxation of the rich. The problem is the message that has cut through is deficits are not dangerous. And the message that you need to tax the rich has not cut through because I I talk about taxing the rich all the time and I frequently get people posting against me, you don't need to tax the rich, you don't understand money. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's no doubt about it that MMT has persuaded a lot of people, you don't need to tax the rich. And I think, you know, and people disagree with this, but I think if you just print money and that money ends up with the rich, you will increase inequality and, and you will decrease living standards. You know, distribution matters. It matters. Of course it does. You can't massively increase inequality and not expect living standards to fall. And the last three years have shown exactly that happening. So I think I'm not against deficits. De- you know, and of course I'm not pro-austerity. A government can afford to run a deficit. But if you take your eye off of inequality and you say, deficits are totally fine, we don't really care about what, the, what that does to inequality, you can't be surprised when the Tory government turns around and says, okay, well, we're going to tax ordinary people's taxes, we're going to cut ordinary people's taxes by 100 quid and the richest taxes by 50 grand. You've allowed that, right? You've allowed that because you've said to them, we're not going to fight you on running deficits and we're not going to fight you on inequality. So they're going to run a deficit to increase inequality. So I think we deficits can be a tool in a certain time. Of course, the power is not unlimited. Of course, the power is not unlimited. But if you take your eye off the ball with inequality and with distribution, it will rise. 
you need to watch it. So you're talking about taxing the rich, but we're often told that imposing higher taxes on profits, higher incomes would drive business away from the UK. What would yeah. your response to that be? So the first thing is, I'm not talking about taxing incomes more. I'm talking about taxing wealth more. You can tax income less if you want. You know what I mean? And then you can attract high earners here if you want. But when we talk about driving people away, I think the one single only good thing to come out of this war in Ukraine is that the government turned around and suddenly decided it wanted to tax rich people. A very specific subset of rich people, which is Russian billionaires. And uh, Roman Abramovich, who of course owns Chelsea Football Club, he fucking paid it because you cannot put Chelsea Football Club in a bag. You know, I think that idea rests on a perception of rich people as if they are guys with like a massive bag of cash, okay? Rich people are rich because they own your houses. They own your house. They own your mortgage. They own fucking Tesco's down the road. They own the skyscrapers. They own the fucking windmills. They own the oil rigs. They own the fucking land that makes the food. They are rich because they own real assets. In this, they, they're, they're rich because they own this country. And they can leave if they want. The country will still be here. And we can tax the assets where the assets are, which is here. You know what I mean? You know, Jeff Bezos owns Amazon. But Amazon sells to the UK, to the US, to Europe, to Japan. You know what I mean? You know, these guys can't just all move to the Cayman Islands. The assets are in the world. You know, they own real things and we can tax those real things. You know, ultimately, it's a question of do you want your country to be owned by people who pay tax or people who don't? You know, and it's they can leave. The stuff is here. They own your mortgage. Mm. What are they going to do? You, you know, we can tax that payment when you make it. Ultimately, mm. their money comes from you. Their money comes from when you when you go to the supermarket, when you work, when you pay your bills, when you pay your mortgage, when you pay your rent. I think people need to... There's one video on my channel called What is Wealth? You know, I'm going to just plug it because it's to explain these guys are rich because they own assets. They own this country. Of course, we can tax it. And I think nothing shows that better than Roman Abramovich turning around trying to sell Chelsea Football Club to anyone who's going to buy it because it's there, it exists and we can tax it. Why do you think Kwasi Kwarteng got rid of the cap on bankers' bonuses? Because presumably, yeah. the, the same argument there, right? Actually, it's a little bit different because that's not a tax. It wasn't actually raising money. They might actually make the argument it will raise more money because we'll have yeah. a larger financial service industry here. What was the, what was the thinking there, do you think? I'll, I'll be honest. The, the thing, I understood the economics of the budget very well, in my opinion. The thing which I'm struggling to understand is why they did what they did. And the most people I speak to are struggling as well. Um, and, you know, some people say they're ideological. I'll be honest, a lot of people say that they're idiots. But a lot of people in the markets genuinely think they're idiots. Quasi Quarting worked in markets. And everybody's saying, oh, I know this guy that worked with him. He said he was an absolute idiot. He's got a PhD in economic history. Mind you, you've, just, well, you've already said, you've <laughs> yeah. already rinsed academics. So. Um, I, I couldn't tell you, honestly. I think that he probably thinks that it will... Do you think he thinks it will play well with a certain demographic? They, he's trying to pitch himself as... We are pro-growth and we are pro-dynamism. Wow. One thing I'd say that I think is interesting about bankers, I was a banker for a long time. I was very poor growing up, all right? That is the kind of policy which you ask 15-year-old me doing maths lying on the floor of his front room, you know what I mean? Who probably like it, you know what I mean? Because I'm poor and I see a system where, you know, people around me in London are millionaires and don't pay much tax. And I'm thinking, well, I want to get out of that channel. You know, finance is aspirational isn't it for people for me it was aspirational you know what i mean so i couldn't tell you for sure and i think it's i mean it's fallen flat um but 
I think maybe he's trying to pitch himself as aspirational. You know, that, that seems to be what they're going for as a brand. Would it play well with the sort of people you used to work with? Would they sort of hear that come through in the mini budget statement yeah. at, at Citibank and go, fucking hell, brilliant. I'll tell you, I've got a good story about this. Um, I mean, so I worked, started working in 2008 and in 2009, um, I think it was in 2009, it was still a Labour government and they, were, they announced a big increase in tax on the banks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was shitting myself, right? Because I was still poor. I'd never been paid, you know? You know, I had a job at a bank, but I hadn't made any money yet. And I was like, fuck me, I've worked this hard to get here and now they're going to raise taxes on me. And I looked around me at the traders on the desk. They were fucking laughing. They were fucking laughing because they knew it wouldn't affect them. They knew it wouldn't affect them. And I remember this sort of, it's weird for someone like me who comes from a poor background to just see this confidence, this like, and that was a Labour government, right? This knowledge that, look, these guys, and these guys don't worry, we got them. They ain't, gonna, they ain't gonna come for us. It's just, it's just, it's for the people. You know, it's, it's you know, and you know, the banker bonus cap, in the reality of it is, all it led to was a massive increase in banker salaries. You know, so it's a good example of a tax, which is for, for your image, basically. It's a messaging tax because, it, you know, essentially it's not a tax, it's just a change in the structure of pay, you know. Um, so I, I honestly think they probably don't really care. They, they understand that it's just, it's for messaging. It, it's, a, it's for the conservative part in the way that they look. On the crypto thing, we mentioned it a bit earlier on. So tons of working class guys and, and others as well. But it is a thing, as far as I can see, have sort of been sucked into crypto. Yeah. Um, are they being conned? You know, you're somebody that's interested in financial markets <sighs> and assets and wealth. But the way yeah. it's being talked about and speculated on, particularly on social media, it seems a little bit more like a Ponzi scheme. Am I being unfair? Basically, in my opinion, yes. Listen, I live on my investments. I, I, I make investments. I'm an, I'm an investor. If you want to invest in something, you should do your due diligence, okay? The number one thing that you should check before anything else, you probably shouldn't need to check it, is that the thing that you're buying fucking exists. You know, th- these guys, it's fucking internet points, mate. See, I, I, yeah, I'm going to get hate on this for the internet. That is what it is. It's internet points, you know? And I said this before this crash. I've been saying it for a long time. These guys are selling you fucking snake oil, you know, and they're going to take that money that you gave to them to buy your, their fucking dog coin and they're going to buy your fucking mum's house. That is what they're going to buy with it. You know, you could be saving that money to buy houses and they're selling you fucking points on the internet. And, and I understand it. I understand it, you know, because I've been there. I've been poor. You see the guys are oh, making money trading, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, all the guys who, you know, they're, they're showing on their Instagram, I bought a Lamborghini with crypto. Listen, I've come out on crypto, so I get the messages from people, all right? The guys who fucking lost their fucking life savings trading crypto, they don't fucking post it on Instagram. You know, it's as simple as that. But they message me. They message me saying, oh, I've lost all my money. Can you give me some advice? I've got this new strategy. And I have to message them back saying, listen, you've got a problem. It's an addiction. My advice is that you never trade this ever again. And, you know, and you come out and you, you, once you speak out on it, you get these guys flooding to you. Oh, I've lost all my fucking savings. And it's, you know, it's fucking gambling addiction, man. And it, it ruins it, it ruins lives, it ruins family. And, you know, also, you know, these people, I've been poor, I've been that fucking young, dumb, full of cum guy that wants to make a ton of cash. You know what I mean? I understand it. But these people, they should be our best fighters to make this fucking system better for ordinary families. The guys but, buying crypto. Yeah, because they're young, they've got energy. Listen, I'm getting older now, you know what I mean? I can't be out every day like pushing this, you know? But these guys... They're getting screwed over by the system and then they're getting sold the fucking fake cure by the system that's taking all their money. Come here and help us build a system that will get you a fucking house. You know what I mean? And, and I know 
it's a seductive idea like you buy this coin you can become a millionaire and you know i'm not telling you if you follow my fucking youtube you'll be a millionaire it's, that's not going to work like that but if we lose this fight you and your family will be fucked i'm sorry i don't want to say it like that but that is what it is you know this is not a fight where the winners make millions this is a fight for survival mm -hmm. you know so, so I you, you, you would put crypto as a a very discreet asset sort of class which is nothing like like you said housing or land or gold you wouldn't touch it with a barge pole i'm short the reason i'm short and um, people probably say always oh, saying this shit because he's short the reason i'm short is because i started to get asked to do a lot of interviews on crypto and i went on tv and radio and said i think it's bullshit and you know i'm a big believer that you shouldn't say shit you don't believe okay so if i'm going to say something on the radio i've got my nuts on it okay i still trade every day right and the things that i say is going to happen i'm betting on them so I went, I opened up and I went short crypto. You know, I went short crypto just, just simply because. So explain what that means to our audience. It means I basically bet the price will go down. And if the price goes down, I made money and I've made some money on it going down. And I'm still short because I think it will still go down. Um, I don't consider myself to be a crypto trader. I'm just saying that because, you know, opinions are cheap. Okay. I got my nuts on this. If it goes up, I'm going to lose money. So you know what I believe. That's what I believe. And, you know, I was one of the top traders in the world and, I'm a very successful trader. People don't have to believe me, but that isn't, for me, that is a statement of intent. And look, I don't want to trade crypto. I think it's bullshit. And I think it takes away, I think it's sucking the life out of a lot of talented young people. And I've seen a lot of things do that in my time. Um, and it's, it's turning them into gambling addicts. And I'm being very harsh on it here. And I know people are going to come at me, but I'm trying to save you money. But seriously, you know, I'm just telling you what I believe. Mm. You don't have to agree with me, but look, you know, we're losing our houses here. You're trading dog coins. Like, you're going to play with us or you're going to play with that? That's the way I see it. Mm. Last question. You recently said, my grand macro thesis is that real interest rates have to stay low, as we've said. And that's because the rich have all the wealth and like saving, as you've said. Now, no matter how hard you work, how smart you are, if you come from, quote, the wrong family, you'll probably never own property. That is feudalism. We're going back into a world of aristocracy. Capitalism's over. So capitalism's over. What does that mean? It's a good quote, first of all. It's a great uh, quote. That's uh, why we're ending on it. Um, when I say capitalism is over, I say capitalism is a big word. People have different ideas what it means, okay? But for me, and for what I think a lot of people from where I'm from believe capitalism is or should be, is a system where if you fucking work hard and you're talented and you go for it and you do your best and you get the good degree and you get the good job and you hit it, you should not necessarily become super rich, but you should have there for you a nice, secure, comfortable life, house, family, if you want it. That's capitalism. That is the way, I know some people not, not agree with that, but that is the way people sure. where I'm from are raised to believe. They're, it's about a society where if you work hard, if you do the right thing, you will be Marcus financially secure. Yeah, yeah that, is, that is what we, we are like raised to believe, that we live in that kind of society. And yet I live in a world now where, look, I've got a mate. He's a big fan of yours, by the way, so we'd be happy to be mentioned. He works in fashion, smart guy, went to Central St. Martin's, big fashion school, works fucking hard. You know, he, stay, he lives with, he earns good money now. It mm. took him a long time to get there. He lives with his parents, saves up, saves up, saves up because he wants to buy a house. But the fucking house prices go up quicker than his fucking, his fucking deposit does. Mm -mm. And now mortgage has gone up. How's this guy going to get a house? This guy's done fucking everything you want him to do. You know what I mean? Studied hard, best university, really gone for it. Worked, 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 saving up everything. This guy doesn't even know if he's ever going to be able to afford a family. So from, and, and at the same time, I've got friends buying houses because their mum gave him 400 grand. That's not fucking capitalism. That is an, an inherited society. We are moving away. You know, there was 30, 40, 50, 60 years 
where you know my dad worked for the post office you know i grew up it's, it's all pakistanis and indians where i grew up right their grandparents came over from pakistan from india from kenya right just worked in shops you know some of them are cleaners and they've got properties now you know what i mean and they're secure now that was possible in the 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s and it is not possible anymore We've got smart, bright, hardworking kids going to the best universities, doing everything they can, and they will never own property. So when I say capitalism's over, that is what I mean, because we, we have ended a society where ordinary people can expect to get a good quality of life for working hard. Gary, what a pleasure, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarromedia.com forward slash support.